Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, acclaimed author and psychotherapist A.F. Brady steps into the interrogation room. She's here to answer a few questions about her writing and her process, maybe help clear some things up for us. Alex was born and raised in New York City, earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Brown University, and two master's degrees in psychological counseling from Teachers College at Columbia University. She currently has a private counseling practice and treats individuals and couples. Alex's first novel, entitled The Blind, released to critical acclaim in 2017 and established Alex as a fantastic psychological thriller writer. Once a Liar, her second book, published last January, again to critical acclaim, and Alex is reported to be working on a third novel right now. Alex, welcome to Writers and the Beat. Thanks so much for making time, and uh, as far as I know, for not bringing along an attorney. Oh, I have not brought my attorney with me today, Gavin. Perfect. There's no legal representation in this interrogation room. <laughs> uh, I'm reading through your, your latest book, Once a Liar Now, and I absolutely loved that you opened this with a Nietzsche quote. Um, his, his work and thoughts fascinate me, and I, I try to put some of his wisdom on, on every cover of my conspiracy series. Uh, for readers who are new to you and, and to Once a Liar, what would you like them to know about this book? Um, well, I, I thought that Nietzsche was kind of perfect to open this book up talking about monsters and how we, we ourselves can become monsters if we're not, not too careful. And that's, that's essentially the premise of Once a Liar. It's a psychological thriller that follows the story of Peter Kane, who is an attorney. So maybe in a way I brought an attorney with me. Um, yes. <laughs> he, he's, uh, he's working in Manhattan and he, he's, his lack of remorse and empathy and inability to feel human emotion, make him singularly adept at his job. Um, we open at the funeral of Peter's ex-wife, Juliet, which leads to Peter being suddenly burdened with the custody of his now teenage son with whom he has no relationship. So wow. while struggling to manage his new role as a father, uh, the professional tables turn and Peter is accused of brutally murdering his former mistress, the daughter of his rival, the Manhattan DA. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of moving parts there. Yeah. And then there's even more. So as we're, as we're following Peter desperately trying to prove his innocence, we journey with him through how he became so cruel and heartless to begin with and his attempts to change his ways before it's too late. And the, the sort of central question is, you know, has he already caused too much damage and are the consequences of his actions too great to overcome? Or is mm -hmm. he able to clear his name and get over the past and the things that he has done. And that's the journey that we go on. Yeah. Is there still time for him to, to find some degree of salvation and redemption through all this? Exactly. No. Oh, yeah. I'm really fascinated with this book and I'm really excited to get to get through to see how it turns out. Uh, for me, I feel like I get to cheat a lot when I'm writing, especially my crime series, because I don't have to do a whole lot of research. I would imagine that there's probably something analogous in in your writing, writing psychological thrillers that you probably don't have to spend a whole lot of time doing up uh, or digging up ideas on this that a lot of them walk through your door or are in your, your continuing ed classes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel that, you know, my, my 18 years of experience in this field and, and you know, 
how seven years of school and grad school is uh, Mm -hmm. enough of research at this point. So yeah, I, I got all that and got some books out of it. Now, how how much of your own personality, your own experiences works its way into the books and, and how do you consciously try to draw a line or do you consciously put those things in? Well, I think it's inevitable that some of me is going to show up no matter how much I try to avoid it. And I think that the the old adage of write what you know is is mm-hmm. write what you know in your first draft and then edit some of yourself out of it as you're moving <laughs> forward. But I think that, you know, so much of so much of where I'm drawn to write psychological suspense and thrillers is because I know the real ins and outs of these kinds of psychological diagnoses that are so often visited in these books. And mm-hmm. I find that in so many of the the representations that I've seen in the media and in books on television all over the place, that it's really misrepresented. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to sort of take my expertise to come in and adequately and properly represent the way that these diagnoses or, or individuals suffering from these diagnoses really do behave and what it really looks like in real life. And climbing inside the head of a sociopath for this book mm-hmm. was a scary place to be, but I think it's important to show what it's like in there as opposed to what it's like on the outside when you're experiencing the behaviors of a sociopath and instead to see what, what makes them tick, how they work. You just brought up like another eight questions just with that one statement that I want to ask you simultaneously. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready. Um, first, I, I think uh, bringing up the, the mental health, I think that in the last few years, there has been a, a tremendous shift in our society to bring mental health much closer. We're not there yet, but much closer to kind of the forefront of the normalcy of our collective conscience. And I think, you know, we're getting closer to our society being able to treat these as a disease and not a defect uh, as an, an illness with the person rather than, you know, something that's, that's uh, shameful. Um, and I think that that's going to put us a, a whole lot closer to actually, hopefully, getting a lot more of these folks help and making these works of fiction uh, on a much more regular basis rather than these things end up kind of being a narrative nonfiction for whatever tragedy is going to be on the news next week. I, I completely agree with you. And I think that we are definitely taking steps in the right direction. And one of the first things that you need to do when fixing any kind of societal problem is to get people to understand the truth of the issue, to remove the stigmas, to, to, you know, increase your acceptance. Um, and that's through education in a lot of ways. But one of the things that I've been noticing is maybe it's getting a little too far into our daily norms, getting mixed in, in a way that's sort of limiting the, the real, the real understanding of what these things are. I I keep hearing people using major diagnostic terms in the wrong way. For example, um, having gotten into a fight with somebody's mom and, you know, feeling really downtrodden and beaten up from an argument and then saying, oh, I've got PTSD from this fight with my mom. <laughs> and I, I cringe, I cringe so hard. And it yes. just makes me bonkers when yeah. I hear that kind of thing. Or, or somebody saying, oh, I'm so OCD because they like to have, you know, their bed made nicely. And yes. I'm, I, I, I just want to sort of shake everybody and no, no, <laughs> that's not quite what that is. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, a, a lot of the, especially the younger generation, the, the kids, as we old folks like to call them, um, <laughs> you know, I think that they, you know, they've adopted their own vocabulary, like the word adulting, which, you know, sure. I don't think should exist. But, um, but yeah, taking on a lot of those, um, a lot of those really heavy and consequential diagnoses. And on the one hand, you know, it does make them more part of the everyday vocabulary, the everyday awareness. But also, um, I think it really trivializes the true afflictions. Exactly, exactly. And then it takes away as, you know, one of the things that makes me insane when people are talking about it is to say that somebody who is diagnosed with something major like PTSD should just get Mm -hmm. over it. They just should have the strength of character to be able to get over it. But you would never say to somebody with, with cancer, you know, you should have the strength of character to get over that. Yeah. Tell your cells to stop killing yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, it's a, it's an amazing thing, but somehow, you know, because it's, you know, a disease and, and illness of, of the mind, somehow willpower and intestinal fortitude and being able to pull yourself up by the bootstraps fixes everything. You know, it's kind of like, you know, my granddad would say to rub some dirt on it. You know? hey, I love rub some dirt on it. That's one of my favorite sayings. But when it comes to major <laughs> mental illness, we can't rub any dirt on it. Yeah. 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 There's, it, you know, character has, has its limitations and I think that's just beyond them, you know. Exactly. And also when, when, you know, there's a lot of research being done to determine exactly what the biological forces are behind these diagnoses. And, you know, most of the research has always shown that there's definitely something biologically going on. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, Hey man, tell your brain to buck up and produce the proper chemicals. Sorry, bro. Can't, can't do it. Well, especially as, as you touched on on PTSD, and you know, for for me, I, I definitely prefer just PTS. Um, but I, to me, I think so much of the emergency emerging research is so fascinating on trauma and cellular memory, and a lot of the the possibility of trauma being able to alter the way that your brain works or alter your biochemistry, even to inherit trauma from multiple generations, that it's completely fascinating. I think we're so far from actually understanding uh, all the complexities of the human mind. It's unbelievable the things that they're being able, that they're coming up with these days about how even, even, you know, we're, we're used to understanding how after school special level traumas are, Mm -hmm. are going to be shaping the rest of your life, but how even minor traumas that we would look at as an adult, as a minor thing, when you're a child, you have no capacity to really tolerate or deal with anything that you perceive as traumatic, even if as a grown up with better skills Mm -hmm. and, you know, better tolerance, you're, you're able to sort of manage. But if you are traumatized in a small way, let's say, something that you or I wouldn't even think of as a big deal. You get splashed in the face and you get water in your mouth and you can't breathe for a second. For us, that doesn't matter. But for a little kid, if that were to happen, that could be an extremely traumatic experience that then shapes the way that they deal with trust, the way that they deal with the outdoors, the way that they deal with any number of different things. And it's hard to unpack until you can understand where stuff came from. Yeah, that's one of the really ironic things. I think for me, especially looking at at kids, right, is to me, in my mind, the only kids who are truly resilient are Mm -hmm. kids who've already experienced so much trauma that whatever just happened, it doesn't even peg their meter anymore. Right. I know how to deal with this. I've done. Yeah. And and that's 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 uh, just heartbreaking to me to, to see kids in that position. It's very scary to think that the only way that you can survive is by having survived. And, you know, as as parents, do you do you 
traumatize your children in order to make them resilient? <laughs> how, how do you know what I mean? Like, how do we use that? Yes. Yeah. How do we use that to get to get our kids to be as resilient as possible without causing damage to them? And it's you know, I'm I'm a relatively new parent, and you know burdened with this incredible amount of information of child development and all this stuff that I've learned for all of these years, I sit there and half the time a decision needs to be made. You know, I'm terrified that I'm going to psychologically scar them. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's so much more information um, and so much more conjecture on all of these things, right? That, you know, it isn't just as simple as, you know, eggs have cholesterol, give your kids eggs or don't give your kids eggs. Like when we were growing up, it's, you know, you're going to scar your kid for life if you don't do this right. And the pressure has to just be uh, unbelievable. It's astounding. But the good thing is that I'm a therapist and everybody knows that the kids of therapists are already ruined. So my job is done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can't fail anymore. Yeah. I can't fail further. It's done. Uh, to tangent back around to one of the other many questions that you've inspired me to ask off of my notes. Um, you, you talked about putting on or putting yourself in the head of a sociopath to be able to write this book and yeah. that being a scary place to be. And um, I, I wanted to, if you're willing to indulge me, hear a little bit more about that. Because I know when I wrote um, my first big novel was about a group of domestic terrorists uh, specifically white supremacists who wanted to overtake the country at the ballot box. I know that that sounds like total nonsense, right? That that would never happen in America, but um, never, never. So the main character of that story, I absolutely hated that guy um, with my every being and everything that he stood for, everything he said. By the time that I got done with that book and when I finally got to kill him off, I was so satisfied. And <laughs> I, I wonder like what your cathartic process was like through this book and, and getting yourself out of that sociopath. You know, it was a very interesting process because I thought that I was going to have an experience similar to the one you just described where I, I hated this guy so much and I would be thrilled if anything bad happened to him, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the fact that he has to try to clear his name and that he's being put in this terrible position, the same position that he has ended up putting people in by defending horrible criminals. He's put, you know, the, the victims of these crimes in these awful positions and ruined their lives. Essentially. It's good that he's finally put there. It's, I'm glad, mm -hmm. but I didn't find that that's the way that it went for me. I am uh, probably to my detriment, just stupendously inclined to find ways to forgive people. And this is probably why I became a therapist, but I wanted yes. to find a way to make Peter Kane sympathetic, despite the fact that he's so inhuman. And the way that I did that was looking through and really reading up on, on sociopathy, which of course is not a diagnosis and, and neither is psychopathy. Neither of those things are, are diagnostic terms, but whatever, that's what we use colloquially. And what I was learning as I kept reading about it, and this, the thing that kept occurring to me is that this guy is not trying to be awful. He's not trying to be inhuman. He's not being bad on purpose. He's mm -hmm. missing a chip. Yeah. And the rest of us have that chip. We have the ability to feel human emotions from other people. We have the ability to feel empathy, sympathy, kindness, decency, all of those things that make humans human and make a society something that can flourish because we care about each other and each other's outcomes, most of us. And mm -hmm. 
this guy, it's not that he doesn't care. It's that he can't care. And that made me feel so bad. Um, I felt sympathy toward him. You poor thing. You cannot feel the range of human emotion. You'll never be able to understand what it feels like to be loved. And your major goal in life is to beat people, to rise above, to reach the pinnacle of, of monetary and, and, you know, career success. But once you get up there, when you have everybody revering you and loving you, you don't know how to feel it. You don't know how to accept it. And that was really sad to me. So as I was getting to the end of the book, I felt bad for Peter Kane. Yeah. He'll never experience the success of his success. Exactly. He'll never know what it feels like. It's a Sisyphean torture to me. Now, psychological thrillers, I I think for me, the fascinating thing about them is that they generally cast ordinary folks into extraordinary circumstances and, you know, see how they perform, how they conduct themselves, how they get themselves out of it. And I think that that also tends to capture people's imaginations because as a reader, I'm reading this thing going, you know, how would I handle this? This could be me. This could be some of my family. It could be my wife. Um, and it's incredibly engrossing when someone, especially with your writing skill, really drags the reader in and, and doesn't let them go. Yeah. I mean, I hope that, you know, nobody is found in a position where they're, they're desperately trying to prove their innocence, but also prove their (laughs) innocence against, against this, this lifetime of why in the world would you be innocent? You're clearly the kind of person who would do this. You've done this, 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 this huge list of awful things that he's done fits right in line with being a brutal murderer. Get out of town. How do you disprove it? And also, is he disproving it because he didn't do it? Or is he disproving it because he wants to get away with it? Yeah, and that's one of the fascinating things um, from a, uh, a an investigative standpoint, right, is you cannot prove a negative. It, it can't be done. You can only prove a positive. You can't prove it's, I didn't murder that guy. You prove you were amazing. somewhere else when it happened. Yeah, it's amazing the way that that people even I, mean, I find that high school was one of those times when everybody has experienced somebody making up a rumor about somebody and yeah. having to prove that something that didn't happen didn't <laughs> happen. You know, yeah. and it's one of those impossibilities. No, 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 I didn't do it. I wasn't there. It's not true. But there's yeah. no and it's this desperate feeling and I think that people can any person can connect to that feeling of desperation of trying to prove something that you can't prove. Oh. For authors who are trying to write in in your subgenre and psychological thrillers, what are some of the things that you think they have to include, kind of the key elements or obligatory scenes that they are going to have to include and have to to treat well in order to to really grab their readers? One of the things that I think is really important when you're doing psychological thrillers is to ensure that your your representation of a, a disorder or a crime or something like that is factually correct because it is most people out there have uh, like a law and order level knowledge of, (laughs) um, of, you know, crimes and police and what they do. And when you find out the truth, it can often be really disruptive to a storyline, which I found was Mm -hmm. the case with, with once a liar is that the truth of legal career, something that I'm not particularly familiar with, and I had to do a lot of research for was really inconvenient for my story. But (laughs) I'd say yeah. ch- change the story to fit the the actual facts as opposed to changing the facts to fit the story. Because mm-hmm. if you lose somebody, if you lose a reader on facts, it's really tough to get them back. 
Um, so make sure that your facts are correct and make sure that your, your psychological diagnoses are correct and really get into the head of somebody who has got one of these diagnoses. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, call me because I have been in this business for a long time and yes. I've met people with everything and I'm so happy to tell you what it's really like. On on that note, you have to have some pretty tremendous pet peeves when you're watching or stumbling in the channels across something like Criminal Minds. Um, and, <laughs> you know, uh, how, how long can you watch one of those programs without throwing your hands up in the air and, and leaving the room in disgust? It really depends on how big the cocktail is that I'm drinking at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are some of the, those most important things that you think the, the, the folks should get, should get right? Is it you know, more on the terminology, the behaviors? Is, is all of it generally consistently wrong? No, it's not generally consistently wrong. I find that a lot of times it's, it's, um, it's, uh, maybe sort of one dimensional, the way that, you know, this person has this disorder and therefore they are only this thing. And they make, mm. they, they have a tendency to only focus on the negative attributes of somebody who's got this disorder, which is why I have a tendency to write from the perspective of somebody who's suffering, as opposed to writing from the perspective of a victim of a person with a mental illness, you know? Um, yes. So I want to write from inside their head so that you can see that it's a multidimensional thing. It's, it's, if there's, you know, it's like the parent of a screaming child on an airplane. Everybody else on the plane wants the kid to shut up, but nobody wants the kid to shut up more than the parents do. Yes. So yes. I'm writing from the perspective <laughs> of the parents as opposed to the perspective of everyone else on the plane. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first, uh, I think the first psychological thriller author I had on, on the show was uh, R.J. Jacobs, and he's uh, got a book out this year called And Then You Were Gone which is yeah. primarily written from the perspective of a woman who has a, a bipolar disorder, right? And mm -hmm. then he very deliberately wrote about how the, uh, the positive attributes of that diagnosis help her throughout this story and help her, you know, identify the killer. And, you know, that to me was such a uh, kind of a, I don't want to go so far as say a brave thing to do, but it was a uh, a really original thing I think for for uh, folks like you and for RJ to put out here are these positive attributes of these diagnoses that you know they're not or don't have to be at least you know it's all all negative all the time that there are some very good things that can come out of them completely and also that the person is a person with a disorder not a disorder so we have mm -hmm. to also think about the rest of their lives that it's not just a constant you know a constant barrage of symptoms coming out of them it's people with lives mm -hmm. but that also have these different ways of thinking or different ways of behaving sometimes but somebody with bipolar disorder isn't constantly in either a state of you know mania or depression there's also a whole life that goes into it and i find that's what i meant when i said one dimensional before is that people will write a character with a diagnosis as solely the diagnosis yes but you know they also eat breakfast and pick up <laughs> the mail and do yeah. all the other mundane day-to-day -day things and live their lives without needing to have everything be disordered when you are writing, I wanted to get your point of view on point of view. Is that something that you deliberately write as first, third, or narrative, or is that something that the characters kind of suss out with you as you're you're introducing yourselves to them? Um, I'm almost always first person inclined because I really like to get inside their heads 
Um, I, one of my favorite books ever written is Bright Lights, Big City mm-hmm. in second person, which is berserko that it's in second person, but it's just so, and it's also in New York and I'm a New Yorker and I know all the streets that he's talking about and I know all the places and everything. So it feels like I am that book. And that made such an impact on me when I read, I read it like every year. So just to remind wow. myself of how, how well Jay McInerney was able to just to do that with second person. And it's, that is nuts. Yeah. Third person, I feel lends itself extremely well when you're doing, when you're doing something with, you know, like multiple points of view or, um, something where you have more than one major character, but for me, I need to just get into the head of one person and take you on to a crazy journey, mostly in in their minds and from their perspectives. And I think that's, for me, that's the not necessarily the easiest way to write, but the most mm-hmm. authentic to my characters. But they, they tell me more about themselves than I tell them about themselves. Now, I wonder what your writing process is like from inspiration to manuscript if if we were a fly on the wall in your writing space in your house what would we learn about about your craft um it's very frenetic at first i tend to have a lot of oh oh wait wait <laughs> Ki- kinds of moments you know i, I understand <laughs> there, yes <laughs> there are notes on everything like i don't usually have my phone on me so i don't mm-hmm. take notes into my phone but there's a pen in my hair pretty much constantly. And so there's notes on junk mail. There's notes on the back of like my kids permission slips to stuff. (laughs) There's notes on, there was one time I took notes on a laundry tag because I had nothing else to write on it. Not a laundry, like a, you know, the tag on the back of a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm writing inside this tag. No, no, no. Make sure that this one kills that one. And yes, (laughs) that's the way, you know, and, and And write small. Right. Very, very small. Yeah. So everything is super, super schizophrenic at the beginning. And then I compile all of those notes into one document on my computer and I start writing and somewhere in the middle, I stop writing and like my fingers just go on their Mm -hmm. own. And then I read it a couple of days later. I'm like, wow, that's rad. I wrote that. What? Um, yeah. And then the editing process is, is very interesting because I think things and I accidentally don't write them down. Yes. Yep. So, you know, you have that yep. missing chunk of necessary information <laughs> that I then have to go back and put in. Now, for for me, I had a, a, a writing mentor fairly early in, in my life that kind of pushed me in that direction and, and encouraged me. And it, that seed settled or, or, or hibernated, I guess, more for about 20 years. Um but I wonder who your first writing mentor was and when did you first realize that you wanted to write? Um, my first writing mentor was a creative writing teacher that I had in high school named Bill Zavatsky, who is a, who's a poet. He's a published poet and he's just an incredibly encouraging man. And I knew that I loved writing when I was younger. I wrote this short story about penguins when I was a kid. And then I wrote another one about wolves Um that, you know, my, my fourth grade teacher was really impressed with, but I didn't know that you could, I don't know, it didn't seem like a career or something that I could do in that way. It's just that I really enjoyed it. So I would always write stories. And then I took this creative writing class with Bill Zavatsky and he was just, he was amped, you know what I mean? And this was a professor who got amped up and I, you know, 
his energy gave me energy and he asked me to write for the the school like creative writing publication and I I was just such a degenerate at the time that I wasn't really interested in doing anything that was like academically inclined. I was yeah. so cool that writing creative writing was for nerds, you know, and I couldn't yeah. do that. I was way too cool. And then I regret it enormously years later. Um and I realized looking back how cool I was not. Yes. Um but yeah, I just Facebook friended him a couple of years ago, uh, just saying, you know, Mr. Zbatsky, you are awesome. And although it was kind of latent inspiration, you your your influence was enormous. Yeah, I'm also really grateful, though, that I didn't think that I could write or, or that I really wanted to write when I was 20, 21, 22. I think it would have been so terrible. And um, I, I think my world perspective has changed so much in the last... 20-ish years that I, I'm grateful that I, I held off. I totally agree with that. If you write when you think you're the coolest kid on the block, your writing oh is going to suck. Yeah. 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 When you realize that you are not the coolest kid on the block, which which happens like 25, 30-ish, mm-hmm. then, I'm, then I was like, okay, now yeah. I can write because I am <laughs> humble. I am back down where I belong. Now, I wonder what the greatest compliment is that you've been paid as an author. That's actually an incredible story. I got an email. Um, this is probably about four or five months ago. Um, I got an email from a, a younger girl, probably in her early 20s. She wrote to me and she said, uh, listen, out of nowhere, I have no idea if you'd be interested in this or not, but um, a friend of mine and I are both super, super into your first book, The Blind. And she was recently diagnosed with a terminal illness and she is crossing stuff off her bucket list. And one of the things on her bucket list is meeting you because wow. the book that you wrote, The Blind, touched her so it, she felt like you were writing about her. And so I responded to this email, you know, with sort of tears in my eyes, like, oh my God, I never thought anything that I could write could be so important to one person. And I said, yeah, where are you? Let's meet. And so they were in Jersey conveniently. And I'm oh. like, yo, there's, there's, there's a diner on the Upper West Side on Broadway. Let's get together. I'll be there. You know, and we met up and we sat and we talked for like three hours. We had a bunch of cups wow. of coffee. I was vibrating by the end of it. Yeah. And it was it was unbelievable. I don't think, you know, if I make number one on the New York Times bestseller list one day, if I get movies made, I don't think anything will ever be as special as that thing. No. No, I, I think that uh, there is no external accolade that, that could top that. Um, that's, yeah. that's incredible. And the fact that it happened after my first book. And yeah. I, I wrote a really rough and really emotional debut novel. Like it's a, it's a rough ride to go through the blind, but it is raw. It is real. And the majority of the women who have reached out to me after reading it, women I say specifically, have it, the book has really, really resonated with them. Um, and I can't, I can't imagine anything better. What I said when I first published, I was like, you know what? I want one person to like this book. I want this to matter to one person. And this was the biggest mattering that I could have ever imagined. I couldn't have even imagined it. Um, and so I will always feel that, you know, I've already achieved everything, um, from, from having that, that moment and that afternoon with those ladies at the, at the diner. (laughs) That also makes me wonder what your greatest compliment is you've been paid as a psychotherapist. 
Um, my greatest compliment is not necessarily something that people have said to me, but when I was working, you know, it's more of something that I see, something that I see my mm-hmm. patients achieving. And I worked in a very underfunded and sort of wrecked institution, publicly funded institution, where we were treating uh, people who had been really pushed to the fringes of society who hadn't mm-hmm. gotten severe mental illnesses, you know, don't have uh, housing, don't have a lot of opportunities, people who had been given up on by a lot of other people in their lives. And I refuse to give up on anyone. I feel like everything, everyone has uh, a positive outcome in them. Um, And I've worked very, very hard with a lot of people who I really believed in. Um, And there was one patient who I had that people had really just crossed off their list. And I didn't want to. and I just fought really, really hard for him. And he left treatment. He got himself an apartment. He got himself a job. And he is a thriving human being out in the world without, you know, he's got his regular treatment and, you know, his therapist who he's seeing, but he is a thriving human being when people told him that he wasn't going to be. And so that is the biggest compliment that I paid. Don't ever, ever give up on a person. Yeah, and that is so underappreciated. I think you know a lot of times it's really easy for us as you know cops or firefighters, or military to to be seen, and the success of the things that we do makes tremendous news, right? But you literally saved that guy's life and a quality of life and experiences that he would not have otherwise had had you not intervened and believed it was possible. That is an amazing thing that doesn't get recognized enough. So thank you. Well, thank you. That's why I love my job. And that's why I love being a part of this. And I will never, ever, ever stop. I adore caring for people and, you know, sort of cleaning up the messes that other mm-hmm. humans have made. Yes. Yeah. And that and that's mostly what it is, right? You're, I mean, there's some things I think obviously are, are part of nature, but so much of the human experience, I think for me is nurture. And you know, we're, um, we're constantly reliving ghosts of our past, I think. Um, I totally agree with you, 100%. How did you know you, you wanted to enter the field? Of psychotherapy? Yes. I didn't, I didn't really know. I was kind of told when I was younger. I remember one time when I was really young, I think it was in third or fourth grade, I had a sleepover party at my house. Mm-hmm. And my brother was sleeping over at her, his friend's houses that day. And so I had all of these girls in my room. And somebody started talking to me because they had a problem and they were crying. Mm -hmm. And so then another girl suggested everybody who has a problem gets 10 minutes to talk to Alex in her brother's room (laughs) with the door closed. And so I I would go, I went in my brother's room and I sat on his bed and then there was a revolving, you know, a revolving door of 10 year old girls coming in, telling me their 10 year old girl problems for 10 minutes and crying. And then we all got it out. And I realized that I've never felt better or more useful or more capable of, I'm good at figuring Mm -hmm. stuff out. You know what I mean? I'm good at seeing things. So when, except in my own life, obviously, but in everybody else's life, (laughs) in my own life, I'm a wreck, but everyone else I can fix. (laughs) Objective on the outside, right? Yeah. Of course. Um, But yeah, and, and I've been through a lot of ringers. I've been through a lot of, you know, massive problems and, and big, big stuff, you know, and come Mm -hmm. out on the other side. And so it's, it's a lot easier for me to feel 
authentic and talking to people who are going through similar things um, because I've been there and it's not mm-hmm. just somebody who's like, Hey, I've read a lot of books and I have yeah. a lot of fancy degrees. No, I've been there. I know what you're going through. You know, that's one of the most amazing things about, you know, talk therapy uh, to me is that, uh, you know, it truly is a phenomenon where joy shared is joy multiplied. And generally speaking, misery shared is misery divided. And it makes such a huge difference to get this stuff off your chest. Big time, big time. And I think that everybody in the world can benefit from from therapy because even if you're trotting along in life thinking that there's nothing wrong, you don't need something to be wrong to go to therapy. You'll learn a different part of yourself. You'll learn Mm -hmm. more about who you are and how you work and how much better or bigger or stronger you can be. You don't need to be in the throes of a crippling depression to pick up the phone and say, hey, I want to talk about me with you. And I'll say, awesome. Tell me about you. Uh, For novelists who have therapists or therapy patients in their books, what would you most like to see them get right about those characters and and that, that interaction, that relationship? Um, I feel like there's often this idea of the patient is helpless and hopeless, directionless, and the therapist is, you know, the master and has the answers to everything, which Freud would completely agree with. <laughs> <laughs> Freud Especially and Freud yeah. found the yeah. same yeah. for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think that there's there's a, a real symbiosis in the relationship that exists between therapists and clients, and there's a need to ensure that you know a patient doesn't go a patient, you know your John Q patient doesn't go into therapy to say, um, you know I have absolutely no idea what to do with myself. I'm beyond disordered, and I don't remember to brush my teeth in the morning. Please help me. And here's two hundred bucks. Like if it's not, if you're walking into a private private counseling office, chances are you've got your shit together enough to be able to get there and pay for it. So yes. you're not going to be so disordered. So just maintain the, the the reality of the situation. And the best way to do that is to talk to some therapists and talk mm-hmm. to some people who have been to therapy. Maybe even go to the therapist yourself as research. Holy cow. Yes. And then the unbelievable additional benefits that you will receive by learning about yourself will be priceless. And potentially tax deductible, but see your CPA. Don't take my advice. I'm not a CPA. <laughs> now, the last couple of questions out of respect for your time, Alex. Um, last couple of questions I ask all the authors who come on the show is I know most writers are also pretty ferocious readers. I wonder if you have a favorite fictional investigator, detective, somebody in film, TV, books, movies. Um, you know what? I miss Lenny Briscoe. If we're talking about, <laughs> yes, <laughs> since we're talking about yes. investigators. Um, but I'm I'm a huge true crime reader. I love I love the real serial killers, and that is from from uh, like a psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. I yes. have been fascinated. I remember it was 19, what was it? 1994. So I'm what, I'm 12 years old Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there with a Newsweek article right after Jeffrey Dahmer got arrested. And I've got the Newsweek article in front of me. And I remember the photograph, why my parents let me read this. I have no idea, but (laughs) I, I, I've got the photograph of these, these big barrel drums being wheeled out of his house by guys in hazmat suits. And I was addicted 
Yeah. I was just like, what made this dude go so wrong? I have to know the answers. Give me every imaginable true crime book, television show, movie about these dudes. I found out about Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, all of these people. Ed Gein, Ed Gein, what are you doing? Yes. I was just amazed. And I'm still, every single time there's something related to any of these guys, I will eat it up all day long. So have you listened to my podcast with Jeffrey Dahmer's former landlord? No. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, okay, it's that's- amazing. It was, uh, I, I got in touch with her uh, through some mutual connections and had her on to talk about uh, the realities of crime scene aftermath. Um, we left a lot of the macabre details out. So throw me your email address at the end of this and I'll, I'll share some stuff with you that didn't make it on the podcast. But Please, I want the details. The gore is my favorite part. <laughs> I'm very, very sick in that way, but I, I just love to know all. How do you how do you go in that direction? Yeah, yeah. How, how do you the get there? I'm so interested. How how is someone that broken? Yeah. Yes. Now, keeping that last answer in mind, the very last question I ask all the authors who come on the show: God forbid it should come to happen, Alex. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered. What fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you assign the case? Oh my God, that's really, really tough. If I were to find myself murdered, um, you know what just popped into my head out of nowhere? Bob Hoskins from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) And I don't know that that's fair, but I feel like it's just so cartoony if I were to find myself dead that I want Bob Hoskins with like a really irritating rabbit with him to, to dig into it. And then Jessica rabbit should show up and and be the murderer. That would be outstanding. Well, you know, if I'm going to be murdered, I may as well wake up in Toontown. I mean, there are worse places to be, you know, completely. I would love that. Especially if Jessica rabbit is there, that would be great. Yeah. Where can readers connect with you, find out about your works, your work in progress, what's coming out next year. Come find me at AF Brady dot com everything that you need to know about me is there all of my social media links are there and there is a contact form if you want to write to me and chat to me i love talking to readers and potential readers um all of my articles and interviews and things like that there's links to all of those things there and you can buy uh my books uh in any of the formats that you would like to read or listen to them um everything is available right there at afbrady.com I genuinely appreciate your time. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I'm so looking forward to having you back for the next release. Gavin, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed author and psychotherapist A.F. Brady. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.